Um, tonight we're going to look at a topic that you're very familiar with, but the Holy Spirit has been emphasizing aspects of this for the last few weeks if you've been pay, paying attention. So uh, we're going to be looking tonight at how good you have to be to be good enough for God. Um, well, the answer is quite easy. Uh, if God is the standard, then we have to be perfect because God is perfect. Uh, and then the question is, well, are you? And if you're not, are you nervous about that, that you're not perfect? Um, I don't have any notes to give you, but uh, we'll just ramble through this together. I promise you tonight I will not keep you one second over 8 p.m. Last time I kept you rather late, and I apologize again. hate doing that on a Wednesday night. Um, let's pray and we'll get right into the Word. Father, we thank you so much for once again allowing us to gather here in the midweek and we just pray that this Word tonight will refresh us, encourage us, feed us and draw us closer to Thee. We ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Um, perfection is the standard, but that's a very high mountain to climb. Some people look at that impossible task and take the easy way out by simply pretending there is no God. So if there's no God, there are no standards. Just if it feels good, do it. Um, alternatively, others think that God is real, but that he or she is kind of laissez-faire, uh, quite cool and laid back about the idea of how we behave. Uh, and so uh, you don't have to worry if you fall short. Um, the question is different for Christians. If you're a born-again Christian, if you're a child of God, the first question you face is, how do you receive the gift? And having received the gift, then how do we please God in our journey with Him through this life? Should we focus on the law or on grace? There's a lot of confusion in contemporary Christianity today because of the misunderstanding of how that works. Do we focus on the law? Do we focus on grace? Is it sort of an amalgam of the two? Uh, the problem is when we get it wrong, not only our relationship with God is hindered, but also our understanding of how rituals and religious observances fit into worship. Well, I'll give you a quick answer, they don't. Uh, but you've got to understand the relationship of the law to grace and to God's purpose to understand why they don't. Now, we're not going to explore that this evening, uh, but it's an important subject in the main. You begin by looking at the law and the cross. Uh, the answer to every important question about life, everyone, everything you could possibly wonder about life, how to approach life, how to end life, what happens after this life, every question is found in the life death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, when God took on human form and suffered and died for us, the truth and the majesty of His eternal law was set. All you have to do to see how much God, uh, weight God places on the law is the, the Old Testament law valid? Is God's law important? We'll look at Jesus dying in agony on the cross. God Himself suffering and dying and paying the penalty of your sin and mine. 
he places a very high premium on his law, on his righteousness, his holiness, and so should we. No other outcome, awful as it was, no other outcome was possible than that Jesus should die on the cross. Any less a penalty, if God had done anything less than that, to free the lawbreakers, that's you and me, um, it would have would, uh, distracted from his unique eminence. Any watering down of the law by God would have made God look less than he is. Uh, and he is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, creator of heaven and earth. His law is high and holy and it demands complete respect, perfect obedience, and a very high price for breaking. Very high. Think again of Jesus on the cross. And we know we could never pay that price. So how grateful are we for the fact that Jesus paid the price for us? When he was crushed by the immense weight of our sin and the evil that's in us to secure our salvation, you know, when the Israelites were freed from Egypt and passed through the Red Sea, this was their reaction from Exodus 15, verse 11. They sang a song and it read like this, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Is that how you feel about your salvation? Makes you all kind of excited and fuzzy on the inside and just want to run around and tell people about how wonderful Jesus is? Or are you a, uh, an old, old Christian who's kind of just get me out of this mess, I just want to go home? Uh, neither of those extremes are good. We're supposed to be knowledgeable about our salvation and very, very joyful about it. Um, to fully appreciate the power and the threat of God's law. We're going to look into the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 19 and read a passage there uh, that paints a picture of terror, of awe. For the first time, the law was given. Exodus chapter 19, and we'll start reading from verse 16. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings. Now, what's happened, they've all been gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, the whole nation of Israel, and God has instructed them through Moses, I'm going to uh, give you my law this day, and you've got to stay far away from the mountain. If anybody even touches the mountain, they're going to die. So that's the background to this. Uh, on the third day in the morning, there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain, the voice of a trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. It's a great old English word, the nether part means the far end. Your nether arms and limbs are these things. They're at the far end of your arm, your hand. Um, uh, so they at the nether part of the mount um, 
And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, or covered in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. So we got fire, smoke, thundering, quaking, and on top of it all, if that's not enough, the voice of God. When the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. Now, imagine you're standing at the foot of that mountain, you're an Israelite, and you're watching and hearing all of this going on. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses up the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And if you read the rest of that uh, chapter, basically he tells him to go and call Aaron, his brother, who was, of course, the, the high priest. The two of them go up. He warns the people again, don't come near the mountain. And he then prepares Moses to receive the law. The law came in the form of commandments that enshrine ten steps separating the perfectly holy creator from his creation, his sinful creation. Ten simple, clear steps that speak the difference between heaven and hell. And here they are. If we go to Exodus chapter 20, we see them given to us there. So all the smoking and shaking and quaking and trembling and the loud sounds and the loud voice and the trumpet sound, all of that was to prepare the people to receive the law, to, to create in them a sense of awe. Something really big is about to happen. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then he begins to give them the commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I'm the only one. I don't want any false gods, any substitute gods. Verse 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. In other words, no idols, no images whatsoever. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I am the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God. And you know, people who reject God will say, well, what a wishy-washy God. Uh, what's he jealous about? He's God. He's jealous about his reputation. Very jealous about his reputation. Uh, he's just told us here, uh, I'm the only one who's going to tell us in a moment, don't blaspheme my name. God takes himself seriously, even if we don't. And that's the point of tonight's message. God takes himself very seriously. He's God. He made everything. He made you and me. And he takes our relationship with him very seriously. Uh, and he makes that plain as he goes on giving the commandments here. Don't bow down to idols. Um, verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Do not use my name as a swear word. Do not blaspheme my name. My name is high and holy. You know, we've talked, I've talked several times here about the vast size of the universe. It's, it's unimaginably big. And our Creator, our God, spoke it into existence. Now, any God that can do that is so powerful, so wise, so vast, beyond our imagination, 
we need to get the attitude, even a little bit of the attitude of these Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, when they heard God speaking and giving his law, we need that same attitude of awe and fear when we think about God. Not that he wants us to run about being terrified of him, but to respect him. And to know that don't mess, not with Texas, you can mess with Texas anytime, the results are permanent. <laughs> but you mess with God, and the results are permanent. It's not a smart thing to do. So verse 7, Thou shalt not take the name of thy God, the Lord thy God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. And then he explains the whole Sabbath day there. Um, and pick it up again in verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. This is a... Uh, uh, commandment especially for children and especially for teenagers honor your parents yeah but they're so old fashioned and fuddy duddies and I mean they, they don't know anything about anything <coughs> you know the God who gave us these commandments said honor your father and mother they actually do know something and even if they don't honor them anyway verse 13 thou shalt not kill 14. Thou shalt not commit adultery, not even in your mind. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Don't lie about your neighbor. Thou shalt, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's, neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak to us, lest we die. Uh, oh, would that we would have that, had that kind of reverence again in our meetings. Not that we'd be a bunch of nervous nellies, but just have a, a respect. God and the things of God. God is not like us and God is not our pal. Never will he be your pal. He wants to be our friend but not our buddy. Uh, when we get into that buddy zone is where we start to take God lightly and then we take his law lightly. Um, 1500 years of human history unfolded before someone walked this earth and actually kept that law, that was Jesus of Nazareth. Impossible steps, and he kept them every day for his entire life on this earth. Uh, in obedience to the eternal law, not for himself, but for those who could not keep the law. God in human form justly earned eternal life, then offered it in exchange for our eternal death. Now this truth you're all familiar with it, is the legacy of every born-again child, born child of God. But it's a truth that we need to understand in its context so that you can really appreciate that amazing little verse in Romans. One verse that contains the entire gospel. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Uh, that is an amazing statement. Everything we need to know about our relationship with God is tied up in that one extraordinary little verse. So what should our response be to all of this, to God's law, uh, to God's uh, greatness, to God's holiness, and to our relationship with Him as a father who must be revered and honored, just like our parents, only more so? Well, two important responses to Romans 6.23. Firstly, fear sin. And secondly, appreciate salvation. Fear the wages of sin. Do you know that the Bible refers 167 times uh, to hell? 167 times. In three years of public ministry, Jesus referred to hell more than 30 times. And on one occasion, he actually gave a graphic and rather terrifying description of a man burning in hell, in agony, begging somebody, please go and warm my family so they don't end up here. Um, why did Jesus emphasize hell so much? Why not talk about heaven? Talk about happy stuff. Talk about, you know, floating around on a cloud and playing a little cherubic uh, violin and maybe a harp and making merry with the saints in heaven. And Jesus never spoke about that. But he did speak a lot about hell. The emphasis was important because we deserve hell because of our flagrant, persistent, shameless sinfulness but we're enchanted enchanted by the lie that hey we deserve heaven anyway you're going to get there don't chill i mean do chill don't stress it's going to be okay we'll all get there eventually somehow some way that of course is a lie uh many many people i doubt that anyone in this church does but many of those uh, in our community, if they think of God at all, think of him as a kind old grandfather who protect, protects us from the monsters under the bed. Uh, Grandpa knows we mean well, and he's not angry with us when we mess up, when we do bad stuff, because after all, nobody's perfect. Yeah, and that's the problem. Nobody's perfect, and that imperfection will take you straight to hell. <coughs> If that's true, why am I standing here smiling? Why are some of you smiling? Well, because we know the answer, we have the antidote. But the fact is, we, the, the point is, if we don't live the answer, if we don't, if this doesn't take a hold of us, if it's not something that really burns within us and makes us concerned about our neighbors and others in our community, and by the way, concerned about our own behavior, not excusing ourselves when we mess up, and we all do. And it's so easy, especially if you walk with the Lord for any length of time. It's easy to kind of, and I know because I do it. You know, I've been serving God for so many years. I've got a little bit of a cushion. I've got a credit with Him, so I can kind of slide on that problem. And the answer is no, you can't. His law is high and holy, and He takes it very seriously. When we see God like a kindly old grandfather, it's because we think he's just like us, only a little better. But that's a silly delusion. And it will lead us straight to hell and caring until the horrifying last second when we learn that God is in fact not at all like us and is very angry at our contempt of him. 
We were created for fellowship with God by a free will association. That's what's most precious to him. When of our own free will we come to him, not because the preacher is beating you up to get saved or be good or try harder, not because mom and dad say you've got to do better, but because you appreciate the fact that if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, you'd be hell-bound and nothing is going to get you out of there. And by the way, you would deserve it. You know, God expects just a bit of gratitude from us in return, a bit of maybe effort to behave the way he wants us to. Um, and we shouldn't be surprised at his righteous anger if we choose our own path. As every one of us has done all the way back to Adam and Eve. Now, it may be that many of us, and again, I don't think that's applies to anyone here, uh, believe that when we reject God, or we forget that when we reject God, we, we reject everything that God is and put ourselves squarely, squarely in that place where God isn't. And we don't think of the consequences of that of being in a place where God isn't. Now, the Bible calls that place hell, but it is essentially a place that we create for ourselves when we tell God, no, I don't want you. All right, then you're going to get everything that he isn't. And you're not going to like it because there's no love there, no life there, no goodness, no kindness, no mercy, no justice, no nothing that you like is in that place where God isn't. And we tend to forget that. Uh, and our ignorance doesn't change that fact. It's a terrible prospect, and it should scare us. I, I'd love to do the survey, but I don't want to embarrass anyone, least of all myself. I'd love to know if I could somehow secretly see hands go up. Uh, how many, or when last, were you really terrified of God? Of something you did, and you thought, oh, maybe I've gone too far, or I really shouldn't have done that. Uh, a little bit of terror is not a bad thing. Um, it's only when we understand our jeopardy, even as Christians, it's only when we understand God's goodness towards us, His grace towards us, for not punishing us when we do dumb things again and again and again. Uh, it's only when we understand that that our behavior begins to change. We come to him then when we understand our need of him, not for good feelings, not for happy thoughts, but for the only way he has provided for us to escape the judgment of hell. If that's the foundation of your salvation, you'll be a healthy Christian, if you understand just that. Uh, and apparently we need to be reminded of that again and again. So that's fairly fearing the wages of sin. How do we appreciate the gift of God, the gift of salvation? Uh, well, the knowledge of sin and its penalty brings that proper appreciation and an understanding that it's not merely feeling sorry for what you've done. I got a guilty conscience because I did something really stupid and I shouldn't have done it. Uh, or bad things we might have done to others. It's not feeling guilty. Repentance, the kind of repentance that works in terms of our relationship with God is a genuine heartbrokenness. If you want to know what it looks like, read Psalm 51, David's repentance. It's against thee, thee only have I sinned. 
<clears throat> Repentance is not apology, but heartfelt and deep regret for the awfulness of our sin and understanding that all sin is against God and every sin brings terrible consequences. Joseph was a handsome young man who rejected the advances of another man's wife because he understood where the weight of his sin would land, squarely on God's shoulders. And this is how Joseph responded. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against whom? Against God. Joseph understood who his sin would affect most. King David didn't have Joseph's good sense to turn away from temptation, but he did share Joseph's understanding of who was offended when he sinned. In Psalm 51, uh, he directs his repentance toward God, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in my sight. It was God that was offended. It was God that he had defamed by his sin. And the prodigal son admitted when he came back, I have sinned against heaven. He comes back to the father, but he knew his sin was against heaven. For David and the prodigal and wicked king Ahab, read about him in 1 Kings 21. Wonderful little story there, verses 25 to 29. There was immediate forgiveness because there was an honest assessment of their sinfulness and a genuine heartbroken repentance. God, please forgive me. Uh, I, I need your forgiveness, I need your cleansing, because I can't do it for myself. So, acknowledgement and repentance on their own aren't enough to eliminate the stain and the consequences of our sin. As we've already seen, the righteous God has been offended, our holy law has been broken, there's a debt that must be paid, and somebody has to pay it. And thankfully, in the words of that grand old hymn, and most of us in this room tonight have sung it and meant it and know exactly what it means. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had made a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So let's kiss the sun. To sum up what every Christian should know and every non-Christian should be taught. Let me say that again. Every non-Christian should be taught and God's depending on us to teach them. Not with finger wagging, wagging condemnation, but with broken hearts. Sharing with them this truth. Jesus lived a perfect life but died a sinner's death not for what he had done or failed to do, but for what we have done and failed to do in our broken relationship with God. That's the whole point of Christianity. By our every casual or deliberate act of disobedience against our Creator and His perfect moral law, all of us, every last one of us, earns the right to spend an eternity in hell. Now, that's either true or it's a blatant lie. It's a horrible lie if it's not true. I mean, who would, who would talk about a thing like that just to scare little children and old ladies? I mean, hell. Who wants to even think about hell? Well, the Bible's clear. We need to think about hell a lot in order to appreciate what God has done for us and continues to do for us. We cannot be casual 
in our disobedience to God. All the right, all of us spent earned the right to spend eternity in hell, and only one of us, only one in all of human history, earned the right to eternal life in heaven. And the fantastic thing about Christianity, our salvation, is that having earned that right, he says, Do you want to swap? I'll give you what I've earned of heaven, and you give me what you've earned of hell. And then there are still some people who argue that, or try to negotiate with God about that, or say it's a farce, or mock Jesus dying on the cross. Folks, if that's your only way out of hell, understand it, reverence it, and praise God for it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You all know that off by heart. That should mean a lot to us. The gift is no small thing. It is in truth so great that, that to receive it with less than awe and reverence and overflowing gratitude is to demonstrate a dangerous lack of awareness about God's grace in response to our personal guilt, and that's part of our problem. If we're lukewarm Christians, it's because we just don't get it. The psalmist declares, kiss the son, why? Lest he be angry. Get close enough to him to kiss him, lest he be angry. You mean gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who looks upon a little child? Yes, that one. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Get close to him. And he perished from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Psalm 2 and verse 12. That kiss is the kiss of faith that brings us close to Jesus in deep appreciation for freeing us from spiritual death and hell. It's a holy kiss that demonstrates our sincere devotion to him alone as we submit our will to him and to do his will. But there's another kiss, the Judas kiss. It's a selfish and misleading kiss made possible by a lack of understanding about our guilt and the identity of Jesus as the source and administrator of a holy, objective, eternal, moral law. And everyone in this room, saved or unsaved, has a potential for the Judas kiss. The Judas kiss is manipulative, not submissive. It sees in Jesus a helper for meeting our personal agenda, fulfilling our needs and wants, overlooking our sins, catering to our pride and prejudice, even as we congratulate ourselves on what a good life we're living and play active religion. So in closing, let me ask what motivates you tonight, here in this place. What's, what's your motivation in life? Uh, have you kissed the sun? What motivated you to do that? Was it because somebody told you, hey, just come and get saved. Jesus will give you lots of goodies. Life is going to be great. Everything that you were worried about in the past will be gone, and it'll just be cool. And by the way, we've got a great rock band that you can listen to at least two times a week, and man, that'll just get you going all for the rest of the week. Uh, we fulfill our needs, cater to our pride, 
and play act our religion. This might be a good time to assess, could you be a Judah? And kiss the son in a way that betrays everything he did for you and betrays everything you say you've ever believed about him. Because the Judas kiss is, what can I squeeze out of you for my benefit? Assess your position regarding Christ, whether as an unbeliever or as a somewhat lazy, somewhat unhappy follower of Jesus, always dissatisfied with the little he seems to do for you. You, know, you, you pray all these prayers, he never answers you. Lord, I'd like a nicer car, bigger house, fatter bank balance, and more vacations. And you never answer my prayers. What's with that? I need to find a better car who will jump when I say jump. Incredible that that's how some people think about God. Hopefully, you've taken up the cross of self-denial to follow your blessed Savior out of the jaws of hell into his eternal presence. This next quote is going to shock you. The great reformist Martin Luther, Luther warned 500 years ago of a false Christianity where we would not be terrified by the law, but gently exhorted by preaching the grace of Christ. 500 years ago, and we haven't learned that lesson yet. An informed terror of the Lord and an appreciation for the grace of God must be the foundation of our Christianity. If you don't understand what God has saved you from, you cannot walk with God in any way that will cause you to deny yourself. Why should you? Uh, sure, I appreciate being saved, but now I've got stuff to do. I've got an agenda. I've got a life to live. And if I need help, I'll just call on God and hopefully he'll rush to my assistance. But in the meantime, just let me do my own thing. Uh, Galatians chapter 3. Carol, we're not going to look at, uh, read that. Uh, I'm just about out of time, but I urge you to read it. Chapter 3, verse 22 to 26 and 4. Verse 4 to 7 basically tells us the law is our schoolmaster to drive us to Jesus, to make us understand what it is we owe God, why we need salvation, and having run to his arms to appreciate the, the greeting we get there, the love that we experience there. And by the way, this explains, you notice the one uh, commandment we don't keep? Which one is it? Of the Ten Commandments, there's one we don't keep. No? How about the Sabbath? When last did we have a Saturday Sabbath meeting here? When last did anybody here stop working totally on Saturday? Uh, we don't keep the Saturday Sabbath anymore because when Jesus rose from the dead and he said, bring all your burdens to me, we found perfect rest in him. Jesus kept the law that we couldn't keep. And when the day you ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you become an eternal Sabbath keeper because the one who typifies the Sabbath, resting in God, which is what the Sabbath is all about, that one's life is now your life. So you're a Sabbath keeper. It matters not what else you've achieved in your life. If you're not a Sabbath keeper, you're doomed. Kiss the sun. Keep the Sabbath in Him. 
and lead a joyful, fulfilling, and useful Christian life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that the truth of what we've heard tonight will stick with us. Remind us that you are our holy God. You're not our pal. You're not someone to be trifled with. Although you love us with a love that we can't even begin to imagine. And that we're very grateful for. Lord, may we be worthy of that love in the way we conduct our lives each day. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.